In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, in today's episode, we pick up where we left off last time with Mark Ripito. This part of the conversation with Mark, I took a bunch of questions that I got from Art of Manliness readers and took them right to him to get his input on it. Really great stuff, a lot of cool insights. So if you are into barbell training and want to get more into it, you're going to enjoy this session. So let's get started. I solicited Twitter for some questions from readers. I know a lot of our listeners oh boy. Are, are big fans of your work, and I had just some specific questions uh, that people were curious when they found out I was going to be talking to Mark Ripto. So uh, one question was, should you stretch before a workout? Because people hear different things on that. So what's your take on that? I never, never stretch before I worked out. Uh, now, now, let me preface that by... Let me let me back up. I'll stretch my hamstrings out for about ten seconds. Yeah. And uh, stretching is one of these things that's been investigated fairly effectively in the in the literature. Uh, stretching is an excellent way to reduce power production and reduce force production if you do it prior to squats and deadlifts and and Olympic lifts. Uh, here's the here's the basic question. If you are flexible enough to do the range of motion of the full range of motion barbell exercises that comprise your training, and you're flexible enough to execute all of the movement patterns used in your sport, why do you need to stretch? You don't. It's a waste of time. It doesn't help soreness. doesn't alleviate soreness. It doesn't prevent soreness doesn't prevent headaches, it doesn't prevent hangovers, it doesn't do anything if you're already of sufficient flexibility. If you're not, obviously you need to stretch. You know, if you're a Muay Thai fighter and you, you know, you can't kick high enough, well, you need to get to where you can. But if you're not, why stretch? Uh, it, it doesn't do anything positive, it's a waste of time, so no, we don't stretch. All right. Yeah, I don't. I don't stretch before workouts. Nah, I never have. Never have. I never have. I don't really know anybody that does. That's just that hasn't been influenced by the fashion of it. Yeah. You know, back in the back in the eighties, all those posters. You know, <laughs> here are these stretches yeah, you need to do every day. Why do you need to do them? You know, we tried that for a while. Nobody got any better. It didn't seem to help, and it added fifteen minutes to the process. Yep. Not everybody's got an extra fifteen minutes, and especially if it's not accomplishing anything, why in the hell waste the time on it? Yep. All right. Here's another question we got: um, How essential is squatting to speed development? Well, that's an interesting. 
That's an interesting question. Speed, in terms of uh, a low 40 time, is an expression of power. It's an expression of the ability to express strength quickly. That's what power is. Power is force times distance over time. It's the instantaneous peak expression of force production. Peak velocity expression of force production. If you're fast, uh, the only way to get faster really is to get stronger because of the math of the situation. F times D over T. And here's the basic, here's the basic contentious part of that discussion. The T part, the ability to express it quickly, the ability to explode, is almost exclusively controlled by the genetics of the athlete. We have a very, very reliable test for explosive capacity. It's called standing vertical jump. It's done on a, the standard is the Vertec device, which is a, a little frame that has veins that stick out from the side of them. You've probably seen yeah. one of those at a, at a sports-type gym. Uh, and you reach up and you touch the, the, the bottom of the, uh, of the vein array, and then you squat down without a, without a step, squat down, jump up as high as you can, and touch the veins again. And the distance between the bottom and the top of your hand reach during that movement is the standing vertical jump. Different distance between the flat-footed standing upreached hand and the, tie, the height of that hand at the top of the jump. It's not the same thing as a jump up onto a box. It's not the same thing as a running jump. It's not the same thing as dunking a basketball. It is the standing vertical jump and is extremely dependent on genetics. That's why it's useful as a test because it reveals things that cannot be trained. In other words, a person with a standing vertical jump of 12 inches is never going to have a standing vertical jump of even 18 inches. And I understand all the people on the Internet that, that advertise that they got their, stand, their vertical jump from 18 to 36. That's what we call bulls. And doesn't occur because the standing vertical jump in the best strength and conditioning programs is improvable by 20 to 25 percent. There are outliers. But in general, if a person comes into an effective strength program as an athlete with a 27, 28 inch vertical jump, if the coach could get him up to 30, that's really good. But nobody with an 18 is ever going to have a 36. That's why we use the test. Because it tells us the genetics of the person we're dealing with and their athletic potential. That's why it's used in the combine. Training for the standing vertical jump test misses the point. We're trying to identify genetics here. And the genetics of explosion are, you know, I'm not very explosive. I didn't need to be explosive to be strong. But in order that the equation F times D over T have a more positive value, the only thing you can manipulate is the force production variable. In other words, strength to the extent possible 
improves a vertical. It also improves a 40-yard dash time. But a person with a 6-2-40, you know, is probably not ever going to see a 5 because of the genetic nature of explosion. And I, I hate to tell everybody that, but it's just, that's one of those, uh, it's just one of them deals that's kind of not what we want it to be, but is nonetheless. So it can help to an extent to your genetics. To the extent you can help, you get stronger. Yeah. Okay. I hate to be repetitive, but sure. Yeah. <laughs> Just to clarify though. It's stronger is better. Okay. All right. So here's um another question we had related to squatting. Uh what if you have bad knees? Should you still squat? Oh, what do you mean by bad knee? That's that's a good that's the million he didn't that's really, the, really a bad knee can come in three or four different forms. I got crepitus uh, into my right knee. Can I still squat heavy? Well, you have been. Yeah. You know, crepitus doesn't mean anything except your knees are noisy. A lot of people have noisy knees. Okay. I've trained people that I, I couldn't stand to be there on the platform because <laughs> the noise made me sick. It's got that pendant sound, but they're fine. You know, they, yeah. it didn't hurt. It's just the way their knees sounded. Uh, now, if that, that sound is accompanied by pain, that's probably indicative of a problem we need to investigate. But uh, it's been my experience that the only people that really honestly don't need to be squatting are people whose knees are bone on bone. If your meniscus is gone, you might as well just go ahead and make up your mind that you're going to get the knee replacement so that you can get back to your training. Mm. Uh, that. Uh, a bone on bone, I mean, an absence of a meniscus. I wouldn't. I don't think a person needs to be squatting if they're. But I, I know people that do it. But I, I don't recommend that. Uh, if you've got some tendonitis in your knees, ninety-nine percent of the time you're you produced it with your training. You're doing something wrong. Correct technique, once again, is critical. Remember, the squat is a hips movement, not a knees movement. Most people have an idea in their mind, a picture in their mind of a front squat, which is, in fact, the knees movement. But our squat, the one we use, is a hips movement. Most of the stress is on the hips, not on the knees. So if you're allowing your knees to creep into the squat when they shouldn't be, that has the potential to cause some knee pain, some tendonitis. It won't destroy your meniscus. It won't destroy your knee. It just makes things unpleasant. But again, that is a, it's usually a technique issue. Okay. All right, here's another question we had from someone. Does the one rep max really mean anything? And if so, how do you say? Not unless you're at a powerlifting meet. Yeah. We never test for a one rep max. Okay. Unless we're at a meet. We just don't do it because it doesn't tell us anything we need to know. Uh, this is another argument I have with a conventional approach to strength and conditioning, what the what everybody wants to do is bring a novice into the gym, test them on a one rep max the first day, and then base a whole bunch worth of programming on that one rep max. Well, here's the problem with that. A one rep max for a novice doesn't tell you anything about the novice. I show some kid how to do a squat first day he's done the squat, and I work him up to a one rep max. A, what's it going to look like? Is it going to be a correct squat? Yeah. Well, no, it's not going to be a correct squat because he just learned how to do the damn thing. 
Okay, and if you run him up to as heavy a weight as he can do, what's going to happen to his technique? All that instruction goes down the toilet, doesn't it? Because you just allowed him to do something with incorrect technique. Second, is a person that is that has learned the movement today going to be able to accurately display his one rep max strength on that movement? But with neurological inefficiency and all the other constraints to the display of one rep max of maximum absolute strength. No, he can't. Once again, bad data. But but here's probably the most important consideration. If I have a person that has never trained before go up to a one rep max squat, even if I manage to have him do it correctly, what is the one rep max effort going to do to the guy? It's going to make him stronger, isn't it? It's going to function as an adaptive stress. In other words, 48 hours later, the guy is stronger than he was when you tested him two days ago, and now your data is wrong. So there's three or four lines of reasoning that mitigate against the use of the one rep max. It doesn't tell you anything. And what we're going to do anyway is we're going to go up to sets of five. We're going to find out what he can do for sets of five. And then the next workout, we're going to come in and go up five pounds. We don't care what his one rep max is. That's not the way we train. We don't train the one rep max, so we don't need the data. 